0: This
1: is 89.9 WWNO, I'm Janae Pierre and it's time for All Things New Orleans. On today's show, we'll discuss the upcoming Beyond Incarceration Summit hosted by the graduates. Then, we'll talk about the history of the Sazerac with drinks historian Elizabeth Pierce. That's all coming up on All Things New Orleans, but first...
2: First, we'll take a look at the history of the New Orleans jail. I'm WWNO education reporter Jess Clark. As you may know, because there are signs all over town, this year marks New Orleans' tricentennial. It's been 300 years since the city's founding. Advocates for criminal justice and prison reforms are marking a different tricentennial. It's also been about 300 years since the city built its first jail. And according to a new report, nearly 300 years of inhumane jail conditions that continue to this day. I'm here in the studio with Loyola University law professor Andrea Armstrong. She wrote the report on New Orleans jail conditions for the Data Center. Andrea Armstrong, welcome.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: Let's start at the beginning. Take us back to the first accounts of the New Orleans jail in the 1700s. Where was it and what was it like?
3: So the first jail in New Orleans was, uh, the first records that we have of it are in 1721, uh, and it's where Jackson Square is now. Uh, And the accounts from that time continuing through show that there were rat skeletons that were found, archeological investigations have have found evidence of uh, extreme poverty um, and unsanitary conditions from the very beginning the jail here actually functioned as an enforcement mechanism for slavery uh, in a couple of different ways. So the first way is that if a slave owner felt like their slave needed to be disciplined, they could send them to the jail for punishment. And the uh, jail guards at the time were paid extra per flogging of the slave. Uh, So you could be sent there for punishment, but it was also an interesting economic aspect to it where a slaveholder who perhaps owned a lot of capital in terms of slaves but didn't have enough liquidity could send their slave to the jail and the city would pay uh, the slave owner for the use of their slave for a certain amount of time. And so there's receipts that are archived that we see in Xavier's digital collections, for example, of the payment of the city of New Orleans treasury to a slave owner for um, the use of their slave. And those slaves were kept in the jail itself, along with convicted um, and unconvicted uh, defendants.
2: And this was in the 17 and 1800s?
3: Yes, it was right up until 1865.
2: So the economic exploitation of incarcerated people doesn't end with the end of slavery. Can you talk about how um, inmates were used um, for economic purposes after slavery in the 1900s?
3: Absolutely. So uh, the, the city basically has used the population that was housed at the jail as a a free labor force. Um, And, you know, that could be everything from drainage repair, levee construction, uh, the road maintenance. Uh, So we've seen a continued use of anyone detained in terms of um, labor, but also in unsafe conditions, right? So work that people who were free would not be willing to take because of the dangers and the low pay associated with it.
2: In your report, you say that the legacy of prisoner mistreatment is ongoing. How does that legacy continue from the 19th century into the 20th century and to this day?
3: Well, what we see in this city is that generations and generations of New Orleans families have had uh, members who have been incarcerated in substandard conditions. And not just substandard, but actually inhumane conditions. Uh, They're denied adequate food. Uh, unsanitary conditions, exposure to infectious diseases. And so when these people then come back to our communities, they also bring the trauma um, and the problems from the jail out into our communities as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm seeing from your report that the jail didn't actually have a full-time doctor until 1989.
3: Right, and that doctor um, was part of uh, a consent decree Um, So there's been numerous litigation um, or lawsuits against the jail. Uh, And so there was one in 1969 in multiple sense. uh, And one of the primary complaints was that there was no full-time medical director or medical staff there. And in fact, accounts in the 70s talk about a network of volunteer physicians, um, medical students, uh, but at the same time allowed for pharmaceutical trials on people detained at the jail.
2: Wow. Can you talk a little bit about what the conditions? Uh, spec- why you say the conditions today are are still inhumane? What what evidence do we
3: have of that? Some of this is based on allegations, uh, but there are at least fourteen allegations of sexual assault uh, in the last calendar year. Um, there are hundreds of accounts of unlawful use of force, um, as well as inmate on inmate violence, and I think most tellingly in. In one calendar year, we had seven people who died as a result of their incarceration in the jail, um, including three of those are suicides.
2: Mm. Why is it important to understand uh, history when we're thinking about the criminal justice system today and the New Orleans jail today?
3: Well, I think the first thing is if we've done something for 300 years and gotten it wrong all 300 years, it certainly— begs the question of what should we do differently. Um, The the two responses so far have been build a new facility or sue them. Um, And while both facilities and litigation have resulted in small changes, perhaps not sustainable changes, but small improvements, what we know is that they don't fix the problem. So what it also showed me, the 300 years, is that there has been a lack of mechanisms for the community to hold the jail directly accountable. Remember that in Louisiana, if you're serving probation or parole um, and you've been convicted of a felony, you can't vote, right? But there has to be a way for people who have been incarcerated in these conditions to share their experiences and to articulate what a humane jail looks like. And that's incumbent on all of us because they are part of our community. They are part of this city.
2: Andrea Armstrong, thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Andrea Armstrong is Professor of Law at Loyola University, New Orleans. I'm Jess Clark. Back to you, Janae.
1: The Graduates are a performance ensemble comprised of former members of the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women Drama Club, which formed in 1996. Joining me now is current member
4: Fox Rich and co-director Kathy Randles.
1: Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Janae.
4: Good to be here.
1: Kathy, who are the graduates?
4: The graduates are some amazing women who experienced incarceration in our state, Louisiana, who are bravely and boldly sharing their stories with the rest of us about their experience with the carceral state that we live in. Mm -hmm. And they are doing an incredible job. I, I consider them to be the leaders of this movement. There are several formerly incarcerated people that are leading amazing organizations throughout New Orleans and throughout Louisiana. and I feel really proud to be a part of this ensemble. The graduates are performers, they're a performance ensemble.
1: Now, Fox Ridge, before we get into your role with the graduates, tell us how you ended up at the Louisiana Correctional Institute in St. Gabriel.
5: Wow. It was not by choice. (laughs) So we'll start there. Okay, (laughs) Definitely. I, um, you know, had broken the law and uh, as a first time offender in Louisiana for a nonviolent offense, um, those in power saw fit that they would send me to prison. And so I did two, took a plea deal for two seven year sentences and one five year sentence to be run together. And um, a part of that journey of the two and a half years that I did behind bars did land me at um, St. Gabriel. And in that, I was able to meet many of the women that were in the drama club. But see, you had to be special <laughs> to be a part of the drama club at LCIW. And unfortunately, I did not qualify for that. That's um, not true. I never no. saw her. I never saw Fox well, listen, or Chapada One of the hottest <laughs> things in the women's prison was, um, without a doubt, being a part of the drama club mm-hmm. and the work that they were doing and how they were impacting not only the women that were a part of the drama club, but each presentation that they did, that they brought to the greater community of LCIW, it was transformative. And so they were the talk of the campus, the work that Kathy Randalls and Asetua Amor Aminkum Um the work that they did and are still doing with the women in the prison has a a, a rippling impact. So when I came home from prison, one of the founders of the drama club um, was someone I was in Toastmasters with, um, Cheryl Cahey, and she was telling me that they were going to be doing these presentations that they bought the drama club outside of the prison and were calling it the graduates because many times when people when women in particular find themselves in prison, nobody wants to admit that their loved one is in prison or women to their children. So we normally tell our children and not me I stuck with the truth because it was the easiest and most available but some women for the sake of trying to save face will tell their children that they're away at school and so having left the prison that we have hence graduated from the behavior or the experiences that led us into that system hereby bring the name the graduates now Fox what types of experiences are shared in these performances Oh, I mean, just the gamut of what women go through from the humiliation to the separation to the body cavity searches to some of the women who need medical care or are pregnant inside of the system and the lack of the care that they receive because Louisiana spends less on its prisoners than any other place in the country. We talk about our experiences of the cost of incarceration, the bond money, the legal work, and just the sense of hopelessness that is so prevalent in this system we also talk about the power of the human spirit and what is required to overcome all of these obstacles to continue to have hope and strength and courage to face these demons because um, once you serve your time when you get out of prison then you still serve in time because you're labeled then as a felon uh, and and so you pay your debt to society but when you get home you're still not free because now even though you're not behind bars and Bob wire you are behind the label on your job application you're your educational application, um, your apartment application as a felon.
4: And how are these experiences acted out? Some of them are monologues, and some of them are scenes, and some of them are sermons. DOC number
3: 387416.
5: So here we are, September 16th, next 20 years behind bars for my family. We have worked every day. Every day for the past 20 years, I wake up with freedom for my husband on my mind. Every night when I lay down to go to bed, I'm thinking about the bills I gotta pay, the six boys I gotta feed, and freedom for my family on my mind. 20 years for
1: $5,341 and some change. So you have the Beyond Incarceration Summit coming up. Tell us a bit about that. We are looking forward to
5: the summit. Our summit is the Beyond Incarceration (laughs) Summit 2018. So save the date. It is April the 6th through the 8th. And what we will bring to this community is going to be Um, nothing less than revolutionary it's going to be definitely uh, um, a program for change and um, we've got people speakers lecturers activists coming from all over the nation to be with us and we are excited about that we are Rauschenberg fellows okay and uh, artists and activists and we are using our experiences as activists to take our art form and introduce to our communities some of the problems and many of the solutions to the problems. You know, it's cool now to talk about incarceration and re-entry, and what you often find is that the people at the forefront of those movements are not the directly impacted people. And our mission and the platform that Kathy and Asetawa, through their seeking um fellowships for us for this work, or allowing us, the directly impacted people, to be at the forefront with our voices Mm -hmm. of these conversations. Nothing about us without us is what one of the organizations I work with we say. Uh, And we cannot continue to have these dialogues and these conversations without using the voices of those people that are directly impacted. And right now, the incarceration rate of women in America has risen 700 percent. So the fastest growing population of those serving time behind bars are women. And when you look at that even closer, it's African-American females. And those are the kind of conversations that we are looking to have.
1: That was Fox Rich and Kathy Randalls. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Thank Janelle. you, Janelle. To learn more about The Graduates and the Beyond Incarceration Summit, visit thegraduates.net. In celebration of the city's tricentennial, Loyola University presents a new series called Cultural Conversations, featuring local experts on topics that range from the culinary traditions that have shaped New Orleans. Elizabeth Pierce is a drinks historian. She joins me now to talk about her upcoming presentation of History in a Glass and more. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. How does it feel to have the best job in the city? (laughs) Um,
6: uh, It feels pretty great. And, you know, it feels really great uh, when the weather is like this. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of my job involves walking around the French Quarter, giving walking tours and being able to be outside. When the weather is so pretty, it's even better.
1: When did you develop this interest in drinks? So back in 2004, I got hooked up
6: with Liz Williams, who is the president of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Back then, the museum was just an idea. And she asked if um, I wanted to work with her. I was interested in, in the city's food culture. And I created an exhibit. The exhibit actually was on the drinks of New Orleans. That was our first collaboration. And it was a way to show New Orleanians what, uh, what this museum would be like. So... I began working with Liz as the founding curator of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum from 2004 to 2008. And then, of course, the museum opened. Some of y'all may remember it opened at the Riverwalk. And unfortunately, that year ended with the great financial apocalypse funding dried up. Everybody got laid off. I went on unemployment, drank heavily, and dated a musician, which is the Holy Trinity (laughs) if you just need to shift your professional path. So um, the museum fortunately stayed open through volunteers, but I needed a paying gig. So I decided to take all of the programming that I had been doing at the museum, and I began to sell that to convention and meeting planners, the history of New Orleans, through food and drink. But as you can imagine, Imagine. There are a lot of people in this town that can talk about gumbo or jambalaya, mm-hmm. but very few were grounding
1: the city's history only through its drinks. Right. And that led you to become the owner and founder of Drink and Learn. Tell us a bit about that. So Drink and Learn offers uh, both visitors and locals the opportunity to
6: learn about New Orleans, the South, the United States, one day the world, uh, (laughs) through iconic beverages. It's a really interesting way to think about uh, a place's history. A lot of uh, folks are very comfortable thinking about place through, say, art or architecture. In this town, we can talk about New Orleans history through music. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people use war, which is a very depressing way to talk about a place, but I use drinks because through drinks, you talk about their production, their consumption, um, selling them, and all of those end up touching on all aspects of community and culture.
1: Yeah. And I just feel that, you know, you become a little bit more social when you drink and learn, right?
6: Yeah. You know, something that happens in this town in particular regarding our drinking and our sociability, and it's something that visitors stumble upon, and I, I don't mean that, you know, literally, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is when you're. Are able to drink in the open, when you're able to get that go cup and you step outside your house or you go from one bar to the next bar, that journey becomes as much of your night or your afternoon or your experience as the time spent in the bar. And the other thing that you, you end up doing is you take the spirit of the bar mm-hmm. with you on that journey. So if you sit in a restaurant and somebody came and sat down at your table, some stranger, you would be very disconcerted by that. Like that is not acceptable social behavior. But if you're sitting in a bar and somebody sits next to you and they start talking to you, you may not. Talk to them very much. You may not want to talk to them, but but you will. You'll have you, a you'll have a little conversation, yeah. and so because you are open to interactions with with anyone or anything, mm-hmm. and so I think new what New Orleanians do is we take that openness with us to the neutral ground, to the sidewalk, Mm -hmm. to the square, and it keeps us really open to whatever can happen in our city. And I, I do mean that open in the best way.
1: Yeah, and you're taking that openness to Loyola University on April 5th. You'll be presenting a talk on history in a glass with a focus on the city's most iconic drink, and of course my favorite, the Sazerac. Tell us the history of the Sazerac.
6: Well, I'm not going to give it all away because I want folks to come and hear this talk. But I will say that the Sazerac is the city's official cocktail. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Louisiana legislature passed that resolution in 2008. And while I think that a lot of us have been grumpy with our legislature's activities, maybe they're not always doing what we wish they would do, Uh, this is one thing that we can all get behind. But one thing a lot of New Orleanians may not know is that the original proposal was to make the Sazerac the state's official cocktail, but uh, a lot of folks from northern Louisiana didn't think that it was appropriate for a state to have an official cocktail. Oh, my goodness. That would be the Baptists, the Baptists who don't drink in public. (laughs) So they changed the wording, and they made it the city's official cocktail. And it is appropriate because each ingredient in the Sazerac is connected with the story of the city. What are the ingredients in a Sazerac? So you have sugar, Peychaud's bitters rye whiskey, herb saint, or absinthe, because that's legal again, and a lemon twist. And all of those ingredients are either invented here or they find a home here. In particular, two brands that a lot of New Orleanians have tremendous affection for, Peixot's Bitters, which found their home in New Orleans in the 1830s when this man, Antoine Peixot, opened up a pharmacy and began offering his bitters here and then much later at the turn of the 20th century when Marion Lejeune created this product Herb Saint and that was because absinthe which was used in a sazerac in the late 19th century absinthe becomes illegal and he still wants to be able to make that product so he changes the recipe a little bit and he creates this new this new thing, Herb Saint. And the Sazerac Liquor Company, a few years ago, released a set of magnets of Marion Lejeune's billboards for Herb Saint mm-hmm. that used to be around the city. And they're really charming. Mm-hmm. And Herbicine's a very particular flavor, right? Yeah, it's kind of yeah. an anise, licorice flavor. Even if you aren't a fan of that flavor, there's a lot of New Orleanians that are a fan of that brand.
1: Right. So I know that you can't tell us too much more about the history of the Sazerac, but could you share maybe um, maybe a hangover remedy? For the Oh,
6: wow. Okay. So my personal hangover remedy that I discovered by accident one day is cold, cold watermelon. Okay. It was in my refrigerator one morning. And um, and that's key, right? You, because usually you're hungover because you're dehydrated. And also a lot of times people have drinks with a lot of sugar in them. And so you get that little bit of withdrawal. So watermelon will do that. Then there's other folks who want the, um, you know, usually get that big breakfast. But here's the key to slow down the absorption of alcohol. You have to close your pyloric valve, and the way that you do that is you eat something with fat in it. So like if you are about to go out and you eat a banana, that's not going to work. Or you eat a piece of bread or something, no. You need to have something with fat. And if you wait until you're already a little drunk mm-hmm. and then you go get that hamburger too
1: late. Too late. So So I need the burger before I have the drink. Yes. Yes, that's actually really key. That was Elizabeth Pierce, drinks historian and my new best friend. (laughs) Thanks for joining me today. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Catch Elizabeth at Loyola University tonight for their series Cultural Conversations in the Whitney Room in Thomas Hall. The series is free and open to the public. And to learn more about Elizabeth, visit drinkandlearn.com. And now it's time for another installment of Nola V's Listening to Locals series, a spotlight on New Orleans musical talent. This week, David Benedetto sat down with Leo DeJesus and Andrew Jarman of the band Vox and the Hound, who are playing shows to support their latest
7: album, Aloha Shores. How's it going today, guys?
0: Very well, thank you.
7: It's going great. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm glad I can get you both in here. Um, to kind of get us started, would you mind telling me a little bit about your roles in the band and what you play, what you kind of do?
0: Well, um, I'm Leo, and I sing, fumble my way through a little bit of guitar. And uh, the project definitely started out as um, my songs, my writing, but it has evolved way beyond that, and I'm almost a uh, an extra in the band now. I would hardly
8: say that. Uh, my name's Andrew. I play bass. I sing some of the backup, fumble through backup vocals with uh, with
0: Leah.
7: Tell me a little bit about this uh, this pivot in your kind of musical styles from the album you did in 2012, I think, called Courage, uh, to um, Aloha Shores now, to where you were playing kind of indie, surf rock, spaghetti western inspired music, to now where you went kind of very much like David Bowie, uh, Berlin era, uh, 80s music, funk. How did that come about?
0: In a weird way, I think after after Courage came out, we looked at the songs and uh, all of them, we sort of noticed a trend that we do is where we call them Christmas tree songs. Christmas trees on the side where it, everything, every song would start off small and then build to a big climax and we sort of would always do that thing. And uh, we could almost, we, we started off with the idea of just, Eric the drummer said he wants to do more songs like road trip songs, like just grooves that just sit. Uh, so. It started there, which is an odd place to, to start, and then we, just, we ran with that sound because we were enjoying it so much.
8: I think part of this, what, how this came to be also is the fact that we, we actually came in and had bare almost nothing to every song, and we could just elaborate on all the craziest ideas that we had before, n- not thinking about whether or not we could play this live.
0: With courage, you you wind up playing those songs live so many times. You have a, it's cemented in your head. This is how this song goes. This is what everybody plays. But when you come into the studio with nothing but a seed, you really just go nuts and you figure out how to play it live later.
7: Yeah, I, I get that, and I love kind of the end result of that, which is you're taking uh, kind of these these cheesy like late '70s '80s sounds and like repurposing them for really interesting results and adding that funk in there.
0: I think for some reason too, a lot of us. Got into cheesy '70s and '80s stuff yeah. a lot more in the era, in the time between the two albums too. For uh, that's just I think it's a coincidence for some reason yeah. we all just latched onto that <laughs> stuff.
8: Well, it's cheap. What's cheese now is gonna be cool in about a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. and you know, and what we're playing cheesy right ages. now is but cheese. But cheese <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I could not put it better. It's like a nice Brie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think that cheesiness is is. It's you're not going to avoid it, and I think that's. I mean, we're all we've all gotten older, and to a point where we don't really care if it's super cool or not. We just like the way it sounds.
7: What are your favorite songs on the album? Is there is there one in particular that you really love?
8: I think mine was uh, track eight was uh, taste of the Himalayas. Just because that's the slowest we've ever gone into into like there's there's no song that we've ever started with less than a hundred uh, beats per minute, yeah. and that one is is just it feels good. I like the way that it. Immerses me. <laughs> immerses me.
7: <laughs> what events do you have coming up and where can people find more about you?
0: We have a show coming up on April 7th. Uh, One Eye Jacks, we're playing with Roar. A great duet.
7: That was Leo DeJesus and Andrew Jarman of local band Vox and the Hound. Thanks so much for coming on, guys.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
7: In New Orleans, I'm David Benedetto.
1: for this week's edition of All Things New Orleans. I'm Janae Pierre. Follow me on Twitter at Ms. Janae Pierre. And feel free to tweet comments or questions. Would you like to suggest a guest or topic? Send an email to Janae at wwno.org. That's J-A-N-A-E at wwno.org. Visit our website to check out previous shows and be sure to catch us next week, right here on 89.9 WWNO New Orleans and 90.5 KTLM Tibbet, Ohio. Thanks for joining us.